Welcome again. My name is Nathaniel. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to bring uh, the word to you today. You will likely need a Bible. So um, if you need to grab one, there's plenty at the front or along the sides, but uh, there's a big old piece of text to read today. And rather than have it on the screen, I think sometimes it's good to have it in our hands. So that'd be great. So whilst those Bibles are being passed out, we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John. And uh, we're taking our time going through this book because the gospel was written, as we're told in John 20, that we may believe, that we may believe. And so uh, we're going through very slowly, week by week, to understand the life of Jesus, uh, all that he did through John's gospel, that we may believe. And today we're at possibly the most quoted verse in the whole Bible as we look at the first half of John 3, which includes John 3, verse 16. I won't ask you to quote it, but it's the one that people hold up at sports games and things, you know. Um, So my prayer is this week that as we look at this verse, that I'm sure most of us could quote and shout out loud now, that actually we'd look at it with fresh eyes in its context, and that the verse that we've heard again and again would come alive in our hearts this morning. This passage so articulates the core belief of Christianity, and I want to pray for us before we start Uh, And it's a prayer that I often pray over myself that I would never take for granted the beauty of the cross or the gift of God's salvation for me. And I'd like to pray the same for us this morning, if it's okay, as we read this verse that we've read and read and know and understand, that God would speak to us afresh through it. Father, I do thank you that as we open your word, we can uh, read and know and understand truth about who you are and who we are. And as we look at this passage this morning, a passage that we can quote uh, 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 most of us uh, uh, many times over, I pray, Lord, that you would help it to come alive again in our hearts, that we wouldn't take for granted just how special and amazing it is, your gift of salvation to us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Wonderful. Well, if you've got one of these green Bibles in your hand now, we are on page 1065, right at the top of the last column, starting uh, John 2 verse 23. Now, uh, it's a a little long, so I'm going to read it uh, as I go, but please do follow along, uh, and then um, we'll dive in. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, they, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Great. Well, keep a finger in it because as I'm talking today, you might want to refer back to that passage um, because we're going to be uh, going through it and, uh, and, and drawing some things out that will help us to see uh, this passage in a new light. There's a reason that we're starting this morning's passage at the end of John 2, and that's because we get a big clue to Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus through it. Because Jesus knew all people, and because he knew what was in each person, he knew Nicodemus to the core before this interaction even began. And he was ready to provide not what Nicodemus wanted to hear, but what he needed to hear. As this story opens, we're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and I thought that's quite an interesting note, isn't it, to kind of come at night. Uh, There's not very many good reasons to go sneaking around after dark, and actually that's one thing that down the years hasn't really changed, has it? Uh, You know, perhaps he was ashamed. Nicodemus was this religious man, a devout religious man. We're told he's a member of the Jewish ruling council and would have been part of the charge being given to the Jews in the region to hold fast to the law and to their religious roots. The idea that someone would come and update that teaching, not only that, but to call himself the son of God, would have been offensive, abhorrent to... um, to the Pharisees. And there was a reason that the Pharisees in the Gospels were so concerned with Jesus, because his teaching didn't match theirs, and one of them had to be wrong. So here in the darkness, we find one of their leaders sneaking for a midnight meeting with the leader of the opposition. Like I said, there aren't too many good reasons to be out after dark. And when I was a teenager, I used to like to stay out late with my friends. But we weren't really allowed out after dark either. So I used to tell my, fr- my parents that I was stopping over at my friend Richard's house. And thinking that we're being clever, my friend Richard would then tell his parents that we were staying at my friend Kyle's house. And then Kyle would say to his parents, don't worry, we're staying at Nathaniel's house. And so we were clear, we had our alibi Uh, We were free to frolic the mean streets of Coal Hill near Wimborne, doing whatever it is that we pleased with our nights. It was foolproof. When we got tired, we would sneak back into Richard's summer house and lay down and fall asleep and then wake up the next morning thinking that we knew it all. We'd done it. We'd we'd, uh, beat the system. Our sneaking round was very short-lived, though, because we didn't expect that our parents would immediately phone each other to check in on us to make sure that we were all okay at which point the ruse was up and we all got very told off and it's safe to say that our nighttime antics were very short-lived indeed. The darkness here that Nicodemus skulks around in while searching for answers can be representative of the fact that he and his Pharisee friends were in the dark when it came to their spiritual reality. Like us, when we were sneaking around Coal Hill after dark, we thought we knew it all, we'd beaten the system with our elaborate plan to stay out late, but we'd overlooked some seriously important information, and that is that our parents were smarter than we thought they were. (laughs) The Pharisees here, embodied in Nicodemus, knew the law, but they couldn't see the truth in front of their own eyes. They were so keen to hold on to what they thought they knew that they couldn't see who Jesus truly is. 
And as I was preparing, I really felt God prompt me to think about the reality of the culture around us in that same lens. I think there are some parallels here that God would highlight to us today about the nature of the Pharisees, so resolute in their own beliefs that they're looking at the text of the law word for word and missing the fulfillment of it right in front of their eyes and the nature of our own culture. At the moment, our culture, our workplaces, our media are engaged in lining up with their own ideologies and sets of beliefs that will bring them, if not salvation, at least a sense of self-righteousness. And Jesus is clear to Nicodemus, there's only one way to salvation, and it isn't through resolute belief in our own version of the truth or what culture would have us believe in any given moment. Our own version of religion or belief can't save us. One commentator puts it this way, if religion could save anyone, then it would have saved Nicodemus and his Pharisee friends. Nicodemus sounds very plausible. Religious people normally do. But Jesus doesn't shrink from confronting his false humility. He might be one of the most devout religious leaders in Israel, but he hadn't even got his foot through the doorway of salvation through his obedience to the law. Being a good person just isn't enough. We need, as the passage says, to be born again. If one of the very best men in, in Israel, one of the best religious people that you can think of, who follows the letter of the law down to the last dot of an eye, can't find his way into the kingdom of God, then how do we expect that we can do it through our own works? Through what you do and how you act day to day, would you believe that you're good enough to enter into the kingdom of God? Is there anybody here who could put their hand on their heart and say that they follow every single part of the Bible, every law, every command, every prompt, all of the time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll tell you this, my hand would not be up, okay? Salvation by our own effort is folly, and Jesus makes that plainly clear for us. In order to find salvation, as Jesus says, we need to be born again. D.A. Carson says the focus here is on the need for transformation, for new life from another realm, for the intervention of the Spirit of God, even, Nicod even for a Nicodemus, there must be a radical transformation, the generation of new life comparable with physical birth. It's something that Calvin called the renewal of the whole nature of a person, or my absolute favorite, Tennyson once poetically put it, ah, for man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be. Isn't that quite a cool thing, hey? As Nicodemus is introduced to Jesus, he's invited to update his thinking on what will and won't get you access to the kingdom of God. And it's nothing short of a total transformation. When we say yes to Jesus, it's a full recognition that we can't save ourselves, that on our own we're nothing, but with Jesus we're everything. It's a desire for change, to become more like Jesus, to be ready and willing to lay down what we are and pick up the righteousness that's now ours through Jesus. We become an heir, a child, reborn into God's family with a new set of desires that go with it. Am I right in thinking we've had a birth this week? There's a new baby born this week, right? Wednesday? Isn't that amazing, guys? A Wednesday, a birth. <laughs> Nicodemus is right, though. You can't go and be born a second time. Once you're born, flesh, born by flesh, that's it. You're born. But what we're talking about here, it's a spiritual birth, a rebirth. You're born again. Imagine, if you will, a caterpillar in its chrysalis, in its last stages of transformation. Having lived life crawling around on the ground, the transformation is to provide this new beginning, a completely new transformation, set of wings to go with it. Imagine then that butterfly takes its first stretch just as it emerges and then carries on slithering around the ground as though it was still the caterpillar. Anybody would look upon this butterfly and think, there's something wrong with this butterfly. I think it's not quite worked. Whatever was supposed to happen hasn't happened. It's not 
being a butterfly. It's not doing what butterflies are supposed to do. It's had its transformation, but there must be something wrong with it if it continues to slither. It should be flying and showing off those beautiful new wings. In the same way, there's something about our new status that requires change. Once you've said yes to Jesus, you can't go slithering around on the ground anymore. We're supposed to soar and fly like butterflies. It's a change for good, and it's a change that we should expect. And it's the transformation Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. New birth brings new nature. My friends, we're not caterpillars anymore. We are butterflies, and we're supposed to fly like butterflies. But accepting the transformation is the only way to do it. It's clear to see that Nicodemus remains unconvinced, however, and he sounds incredulous as he retorts, surely they can't enter their mother's womb for a second time. Come on, now, you're talking nonsense. And it's here that Jesus doubles down, and he uses Old Testament language to point to his true divinity. And as I'll explain, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and exactly who he's talking to when he makes this reference. And for this reference, where Jesus uh, talks about Moses, we need to go all the way back into Numbers 21. So you can flick there with me, page 158, Numbers 21. He takes us back to the Israelites wandering in the desert after their exile from Egypt and a warning of what unbelief can lead to. So we're going to read Numbers 21, verses 4 through to 9. Titled in these Bibles, The Bronze Snake, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. So if we go to John 3 and you see referenced in John 3:14 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man may be lifted up this is the passage that Jesus is specifically referencing and he draws on numbers 21 because he understands his audience Nicodemus as we're told is a member of the Jewish ruling council he's one of the foremost Jewish leaders of the time and he would have known the law incredibly well he'd know and he'd recognize the story of the Israelites in the wilderness and he'd know the story of the bronze snake we can infer from the way that Nicodemus is spoken about that he's a distinguished teacher. It means that in the same way that I've stood up this morning and opened my Bible and said, turn to John 3, he might have been in a situation where he stood up one morning and said, hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Nicodemus. Turn to Numbers 21. Let's give it a read. But he, he was the sort of guy who might have been in that type of a situation, actually teaching into these things. And so Jesus is using this language to say, hey, Nicodemus, you know the law. You know what's written. You might have taught about what's written. Let me tell you what it's really saying. Jesus here is saying he's the fulfillment of the law. This passage that Nicodemus knew so well, the bronze snake, you're looking at him. If you don't see that, then you're not understanding what the passage truly points to. It's time for you to stop looking down at your own performance and start looking up at me, the same way the Israelites looked up at the bronze snake. 
the one into whom faith is fulfilled. To ignore the truth is to be like the venom-filled Israelites who fail to follow God's instruction and are caught by their own destruction. Fillmore puts it this way. An Israelite who claimed strong faith in the bronze snake but failed to look at it died, while a neighbor who confessed his faltering faith but used what faith he had was cured. Jesus wants to reassure us that it's not the strength of the faith that we have which saves us, but the strength in the one in whom we place our faith. Okay? It's not the strength that you've got this morning in your own faith. It's the one in whom we put our faith in, in which we find our strength. For the Israelites here, the snake bite meant death unless they looked to God. The fang marks in their flesh would have been a reminder. For us, we don't have those fang marks to look at. But we're equally doomed by our turning away from God, by our lack of belief. What the Bible calls sin, the things that we do wrong that separates us from God, they're like fang marks on the Israelites. We don't have that to physically look at this morning. But the way that we live our lives, the way that isn't in line with the way that God would want us to live, they're venom to us. That means death unless we look upon Jesus. It would be easy here, by the way, to point Nicodemus and Jesus as two totally opposing forces. You've got evil on this side and good on this side. And like some epic Star Wars tale, they're locked in a lightsaber battle for whose truth is the real truth. But actually, I'm quite encouraged when I read this story. Because if Nicodemus was so resolute in what he believed and that his way was the only way, I don't believe that he would have been sneaking around in the dead of night looking for answers. Nicodemus was at least interested in what Jesus had to say. And while we don't get to the conclusion of Nicodemus' story here, John does conclude it for us later on in the gospel. We can look at John 7, and in John 7, verse 50, we read, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he had been doing? The context here in John 7 is that Jesus has... uh, Jesus has been, uh, see, uh, or, or there's an argument breaking out because Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees are coming and trying to seize Jesus for the things that he's saying. And it's actually Nicodemus who leaps to Jesus' defense and says, whoa, 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 does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out? Actually, Nicodemus has already moved from the I don't believe camp to the whoa, 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 let's hear him out camp by the time we get to John 7, okay? So there's already, you can see, a little bit of a transformation. The chrysalis is forming, okay? We've gone from caterpillar, now we're here as chrysalis. All of a sudden, Nicodemus is saying, whoa, whoa, hold on, guys. Let's not condemn this man to be seized. Let's hear him out. Skip again to John 19, and it's up here behind us. And you can read, uh, John 19 includes uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And after Jesus dies, he's taken to be laid in the tomb. And we're told, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who'd earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. There's Nicodemus. That's the end of the story for him. He's gone from unbelief to let's hear the guy out to transformation. Butterfly emerges. All of a sudden, he's the one there who is giving honor to Jesus' body in accordance with those customs. Nicodemus has now come to accept Jesus as the Son of God, and so stark is the turnaround that he's immediately dealing with Jesus' body. It is a remarkable turnaround, isn't it? It's that transformation that Jesus is talking about. It's it's, uh, what he talks about when he talks about being born again. 
we should see the fruits of it in the lives of those who say yes to Jesus. When you say yes to Jesus, you should act differently. Your desires should be different. Your speech and your conduct and your action should all change as lives are aligned, not with our own desires, but what God would have for us instead. And we're seeing that in action through Nicodemus as he comes, this leader of the Jewish ruling council, and says, what are you on about too? Well, hold on, let's hear him out too. Let me take his body. I want to give honor to this man's body. This total transformative turnaround is what we see when somebody is born again. It means that when I read this story of Nicodemus in John 3, I can have hope that Jesus' gospel can reach even the hardest of hearts or the staunchest of opponents. I think of one of my friends who is so opposed to the gospel that we don't even talk about it, and I've got hope that Jesus can break him. I think of family members who aren't saved. I think of people who I know who are too quick to believe what culture would say rather than doing the legwork themselves to find out what they really believe in. Jesus isn't too far away from any of them that he can't break through. Now, as I talk, I actually want you to draw your minds to people that you know and people that you've prayed for for years, people that you're fed up with arguing about religion with. And I want to encourage you through Nicodemus that Jesus can break in. I want to encourage you to continue to pray for these people and to love them enough to continue to share the gospel with them because nobody is too far gone that Jesus cannot break in and bring transformation to their lives. So after we read all this and Jesus references numbers and uh, has spoken to Nicodemus, we then reach John 3 verse 16 where John changes gear from the story to speak directly to the reader to help land what it is that we've heard. He then says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As the bronze snake was lifted up so that those who could look upon it might receive new physical life, Jesus knows that he will be lifted up on a cross, bearing the sins of the world, so that anyone who believes, anyone who looks upon Jesus, would not perish because of what he's done for us, that we might in exchange receive eternal life, new life. The beauty of the gospel is now explained to us. Whoever believes in Jesus gets to enjoy those same rights. And it actually goes even uh, deeper than that. And to help us understand it, I want to remind you of a Greek lesson that Rich came and brought us a couple of weeks ago. He came and stood up after Matt preached, and he talked about the uh, use of the word Greek in the book of John. And the uh, the word uh, for in in Greek is en, E-N. En, that's the Greek word for in. So whoever believes in him, you would expect to find that Greek word N sat in the middle of that sentence. But John in his writing, and actually others, Luke and Paul, and sometimes even Peter, don't use the word N, they use a different word instead. And the word that they use use is ace, E-I-S, ace. And that word is better translated as into. So we're not saying in, we're saying into. So not whoever believes in Jesus, but whoever believes into Jesus. And It's the word that's used here in John 3.16. And when we read whoever believes in him, we should hear whoever believes into him. It's a very small but purposeful grammatical change that John makes. And he uses it 36 times throughout his gospel. And he wants us to see that we're not believing in something theoretically, but we're believing into something physically. It's more active. You are believing into the person of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't pull a punch with Nicodemus. He actually calls himself outright the son of man so that no mistake can be made. When Jesus talks about God's son, he's talking about himself. 
So the call is clear. Transformation is required through new birth. And to do so, we need to believe into the Son of God, the person of Jesus, and find our rescue and our eternal inheritance, not by believing in some theology, but by believing into a person. So where do we start? Because as Jesus knew his audience and spoke directly to Nicodemus through his own understanding, he drew on that passage in Numbers and spoke to him using language that he would understand. How do we share the gospel to the people of Dorset in a way that might help, us, help them to understand? What makes us in Dorset us? What do we love, us uh, Dorset folk? And how can we use it to communicate the gospel? Got a few examples for you. Look at that beautiful. Okay, no better place to live in the world, is there? Hey? Look at that. When we look at our award-winning blue flag, golden sandy beaches, or find shade among the trees in the New Forest, or take a stroll around Pool Park Lake, we can be reminded of the beauty that we find in creation and point towards the creator who made it, who made it for us to enjoy, and made it as a sign of his intricate work in the world. And we can be drawn to him through Jesus and have faith that the creator God who sustains the birds in Pool Harbor will also sustain us as well. Next time you're going for a walk with a friend down Paul Harbour, why not try and talk to them about Jesus and uh, the beautiful creation that we can enjoy through him? When we look at the Sunseeker yachts and the houses on Sandbanks Road or the glory of another year in the Premier League for AFC Bournemouth, we can also see that these things, unfortunately, are temporary. Sunseekers will rust and houses will be sold and resold and knocked down and rebuilt, probably into flats, am I right? And AFC Bournemouth have unfortunately been relegated before. These things are enjoyable and they're good, but they're also temporary. And we're called to look at the eternal, to believe into Jesus as the one in whom we find our hope in season and out of season, promotion and relegation, glorious sunshine and pouring rain. When we look at the deprivation in our own town, when we see the state of the high street and all those boarded up shops, when we see issues of drugs or mental health situations that seem so bleak or the increasing numbers of homeless people that we see along Ashley Road or in Bournemouth Town Centre, when we hear stories from direct domestic violence refuge and local charities who are trying to work into the deprivation of our town, we can have faith in Jesus who will restore all things, in whom we can have hope in hopeless situations, knowing that there's no situation that's too far removed from God that he can't move in it, and knowing that in all situations there's an ultimate hope that whoever believes into him will not perish but have eternal life. We need to be clearer and speak the gospel to the people around us so that they might be saved and receive the same inheritance that we have through the gospel of Jesus. For each and every one of us, in work or out, with children or without, in good health or poor, we can believe into Jesus and share the same eternal heritage that's been prepared for us. In the last few weeks, we've unfortunately had to stand before you right here and share the sad news of the death of two very dear friends of ours at Gateway. And I found that tough, and I find that tough this morning, stood here and expecting to see those faces and not seeing those faces. And actually, at one point, I thought I saw their face, and then, no, I didn't, it wasn't them. And it can be really tough in moments like that, can't it? We, we miss our friends when we don't see them around. And the challenge for us is to trust in the goodness of God, even when we face times of hardship and grief. Because God is good in season and out. And we can give thanks to God for sending his son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him won't perish. And we can give thanks to God that in all circumstances, in the ebb and flow of life, God is no more or no less glorified based on how I feel. 
it was a privilege this week to stand uh, with many of you at the, the funeral of Shirley Ann Mail and hear stories of how she brightened so many people's lives. And uh, there was a moment where somebody stood up, and it was a story I hadn't heard before, and it was the story of how she came to know Jesus. And there was this amazing, same inquisitive spirit that Shirley Ann was known for, but that actually we even see a little bit here in Nicodemus. Are you sure, asking questions? Is this really true? Could this really be true for me? This was the story that was shared. And she gave her life to Jesus and has her eternal life, her inheritance in front of her. We experience sadness that she isn't with us on a Sunday morning, but we can give thanks that she's seeing her hope realized in Jesus. So if you're in a low moment this morning, Jesus is still calling you to fix your eyes on him. Any temptation to go down the what-if road and to pine for what could have been or what we could have done, we need to stand firm and anchored to the truth of what is because the what-if road won't lead anywhere good, but the road through Jesus will. We can take hope in the fact that our two dear friends are seeing their hope fulfilled and we should stand firm in what we know to be true. God loves us. He made a way through his son Jesus that we might know and experience that love for eternity. All we need to do is believe into the person of Jesus and look to him and trust that he's sufficient for all people in all circumstances. And that's why it's so important that we need to go from here and continue to share the gospel with those around us that they might share in that same inheritance too. As a reminder, it's not the strength of our own faith, but the strength of the one in whom we put our faith into that makes all the difference. The answer doesn't lie inwards, but upwards. We can't be better, we can't do better, but we can look to the author and perfecter of our faith, the son of man who makes himself known to us, who's here today imploring us to look at him and believe into him in the same way that he stood in front of Nicodemus. Jesus is here today, and he's calling you, don't look down, don't look inward, look to me. I'm the answer that you need. And as we saw, Nicodemus came to see Jesus as he truly was. And I really do believe that the same can be true for you today as well. God sent his son to die that we might live and live for eternity. And why did he do it? For God so loves the world. He did it out of love. The beautiful gospel that we believe in is one born out of love. God loves you. Grace, God loves you. Rich, God loves you. Gordon, God, God loves you. Sandy, God loves you. Prisca, God loves you. So much that he sent his son for you. Sid, he sent his son for you. Nick, he sent his son for you. Jan, he sent his son for you. Leslie, he sent his son for you. That you won't perish but have eternal life. That you might have hope in this life and a promise of an eternal life to follow. That is true for you if you know Jesus. If you have believed into the person of Jesus, that is true for you. And if you haven't yet made that step of faith, that can be true for you this morning, right now. And it's here that I want to return to the very beginning of my message this morning. As a reminder, I prayed for us. I stopped and said, whether this is the first time you've heard this passage or the thousandth time you've heard this passage, I want to pray that you'll be impacted by it the same way, that you'll never lose sight of how special or beautiful or glorious it is, that that transformation has been true for you and that you now have that inheritance of eternal life through Jesus. I want to pray for each and every one of us that we would be impacted by the knowledge that God loves us God loves me and you personally, that he knows you, me and you personally, and that he wants to be with you and has made a way for it to happen. So whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, let's look to the person of Jesus again this morning. Don't look down, don't look in. Look up to the person of Jesus and give thanks for all that he's done. Give thanks that we now know relationship with God today and for all eternity.
Won't you stand with me? I'd love to pray for us all to that end, that we'd be impacted afresh by the love that God has for us, that we might look on the person of Jesus. And as I pray, you might want to pray this prayer with me for the very first time, to say yes to Jesus for the first time and receive the love and hope and the eternal promise that I've been talking about. So let me pray. And if you do pray this prayer for the first time this morning, then I would love for you to come and find me so that we can talk more about it as well. Let me pray for us. God, I want to thank you for your love. Thank you for your love for us that defeated sin and death through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the instruction that we're not to look down, we're not to look in for signs of, uh, uh, of salvation, but we're to look up, we're to look to you. You died on the cross, you were risen, raised to life, defeating sin and death for us that we might have an internal inheritance. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would never, ever lose sight of how special that is, that we are co-heirs with Jesus in the family of God. Lord, I want to pray for us this morning that maybe for the first time there might be some that choose to say yes to you. To say yes, to look upon you for the first time and to see just how amazing you are, that you have saved and you have rescued us and you have given us a promise of an eternal hope and future with you. Lord, I want to pray for each one of our hearts this morning that we would know and understand and feel deep in us the beauty of your gospel again, just how much you love us, just what you've done for us. Help it to come alive in us again, not to hit stale ears, but to hit open hearts. You love us, and I'm so, so grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. Amen.